I love those songs, and uh, we love the cello, don't we? Uh, I said earlier, you know, we love all of you. Okay, everyone, we love everyone. Yeah, Chelsea, right. you know, the, it's a special, it's a special sound. I want to add my welcome to others this morning. My name's Lloyd Shadrach. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. I know those of you who are members at Fellowship, you know these things, but we have guests all the time, whether in the room or online. So Rob and I, week by week, want to, to remind them, and, and it's a reminder to us, too, that, you know, we are one church with two locations. Uh, Rob's teaching at our Franklin congregation now. Um, it's, it's not just because we have two locations that we have two teaching pastors. It's rooted for us in a New Testament principle of together is better, that there is a plurality that seems to flow throughout the leadership of the church in the New Testament, and that includes right here in the pulpit. And so we say week by week that, you know, it's not about me, it's not about Rob, it's not about what I'm about to say in a few moments, it's about this word and being faithful to it, and we want our focus to be here, not on any person or, or persona. So uh, that's why you'll see Rob next week, and if you're a guest, you kind of wonder, wait, which church am I at? You know, who's, who's that guy? Well, that's how we like to do things. Uh, we are glad you're here. You're here, so that's a step you've taken, but there's always a next step, always. And that next step for you would, would be to come to Intro to Fellowship. If you're considering making this your church home, you can go to the website, um, connect at fellowship.com. Every month, the first Sunday of every month, we have a class. And it's at that class that we actually get to know you a little better and you get to know us. And so we, we, we say it week by week so you can put that on your calendar. <clears throat> Let me also say thank you for your giving. Um, we'll talk about giving week by week too because uh, it's a part of worship. It's a part of the spiritual journey. We truly believe that God owns it all and we steward all he entrusts to us. And we're grateful for your generosity. And this is how we give now. You know, we remember passing plates. We don't do that anymore. So you give online. Uh, thank you for your generosity. Um, you know, when, when we give, uh, it enables us, all of us, not me, but all of us to fulfill the mission that God has given us come to a very challenging text this morning, and so I'm going to ask you to pray one more time with me. Father, thank you for uh, this time we've spent to sing, and now we come, and even in our singing, we've put ourselves under your word because those were biblical words we sang, biblical concepts, theological truths. And so now as we listen to your word in John, Holy Spirit, we invite you to open our eyes. Do what only you can do. Open the eyes of our hearts to believe and to choose faith, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Go ahead and take your Bibles. <clears throat> Let's get them open to John chapter 7. We, we were five weeks in John chapter 6, making our journey through the book of John. What a wonderful way to end chapter 6 with baptisms. Last week, if you were here, a celebration of those whom Christ has saved. Um, it was chapter six where we talked about, you know, uh, God's sovereignty and salvation. Uh, chapter six was all about Jesus telling anyone and everyone, come to me, I'm the bread of life. Eat me, trust me, my life, death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins and eternal life. <clears throat> Those that were baptized, right? It was a celebration that they chose, they chose Christ. And we also know that Christ had chosen them from before the foundation of the world. Now in chapter seven, <clears throat> we're coming out of that. 
And uh, y'all, we are only six months in, in the biblical timeline from the cross, <coughs> his burial and his resurrection. Just, we're only seven chapters in, a book that has 21. But we're at the end and everything's getting compressed. And one of the things that's happening is in this compression, the opposition is rising. It's getting more public. It's getting more direct. As I was reading through this, it, uh, I had this thought come to mind, and it's a quote that I, I, I read back when I was, you know, I guess I was 19 years old. I was in college, and, you know, I was reading the journals of, of Jim Elliott, or Shadow of the Almighty, some of you are familiar with the book, but missionary to the Aka Indians. He said this, it was on the screen. He said, Father, make me a crisis man. Bring those I contact to decision. Let me not be a milestone on a single road, Make me a fork that men must turn one way or another on facing Christ in me, end quote. Jesus is, and he remains, you all, a fork in the road. To, to hear him, to encounter Jesus, we must note this, is to, is to be faced with a choice, always, every time. You can see the choice in this way. It's always a choice between, between hope and hopelessness. See it that way. It's always a choice between fullness and emptiness or, or peace and chaos. And if I summarized it all, I could go on and on. It'd be this. Every time we encounter Jesus, we do have a choice. He's a fork in the road. And the choice is between life and death. Every time. I want to say on the front end of, of this message, we've got 24 verses we're covering. The text ends with a command, not, a, not just a statement or a suggestion, but an imperative in the Greek, a command from Jesus. He'll say, do not judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. And so I, I, I just want that on your mind as we encounter Jesus. Because if you're here in the room or you're online, that's where we'll land with his command to make a judgment about him. And I trust by the spirit we'll choose wisely. There are three, I'm going to call them movements because it's, it's moving through a timeline here in a sense in our 24 verses. I'll put them on the screen just so you have something in your mind's eye to see how the story unfolds. It's a narrative. It's part one. Rob will pick up part two next week. But there is the, the feast at hand, so pre-feast, you know, pre this feast, verses one through nine. Then there's the feast in secret, Jesus there in secret. And then finally through 24, it goes, we'll see the feast in public. So let's start with the, the, the feast at hand just before it. It's verses one through nine. I'm only going to take one through five right now. So look at one through five in your Bibles. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Chapter six was at the, let me give you a timeline. Chapter six was during the time of Passover. And that would have been in the spring of that year. 
We know now that we're on the cusp of the Feast of Booths. And that means what's happening now is in the fall. And so let's note that it's been six months since the feeding of the 5,000, walking on water, come to me, I'm the bread of life. It's been six months. And during that six months, he's remained in Galilee. You know, visualized geographically, you know, Israel's kind of like Tennessee, long and narrow, only turned this way. And so Galilee is, is, is up north around the Sea of Galilee. It's where Jesus did a lot of his ministry. It's 80 miles south to Judea and to Jerusalem. And, and we won't go into all of it here, but, but it's very distinct and different between Galilee and Judea. We already know because 5.18 says that the Jewish leaders want to kill Jesus. And so it says here, so he, the, the, the power center of the Jewish leaders is not Galilee. Where is it? It's Jerusalem. So Jesus remains 80 miles from there. He remains in Galilee. You go, well, 80 miles, that doesn't seem like far, but you got to think of it this way. You know, they walked everywhere. It's like, how far can you, you know, 80 miles, you know, you, you can do it in, in, in five days, but how far can you drive in five days? You know, the difference is huge. I'm only going to give the briefest of introductions to the Feast of Booths. Sukkot, Feast of Booths, Sukkot's the Hebrew word. It's a seven-day feast. It became eight by the time of Jesus. Um, I, I'm just kind of overviewing it, but let me say this. This feast, it, it, it has a, a story arc that it begins like this. It goes up and there is a peak. There's something that happens at the peak moment of this feast that is as, perhaps as profound of words that come from Jesus' mouth as it does throughout the whole gospel. Rob will pick that up next week. I hope you do not miss it. For now, the most important thing to know is this. When it says, oh, the Feast of Booths is at hand, and this chapter is all happening within the Feast of Booths, know this, it was the feast. <laughs> it was the biggie. Uh, there, there are three feasts by which every male in Israel needed to go up to Jerusalem. Those kind of the big three, the big three feasts. You think of those as Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles or Booths. Of the three, as we as Gentile Christians, really, we, we tend to think of Passover as the biggie, which, which would make sense because Passover celebrating their deliverance from bondage in Egypt. And it's the sacrificing of the, right, the blood on the lentil sacrifice and all that. It's a picture of Jesus. So we kind of go, that's the main one. But listen, for the Jews and for these people here in this context, the Feast of Booze was the one, truly the biggest feast for them. For eight days, it was eight days by the time of Jesus, these shelters, these temporary shelters sprang up all over. In Jerusalem, y'all, they would just picture Jerusalem covered with these little pup tents. Literally, it's what it would look like. Temporary shelters in every open space. You know, it'd be in the aisles right here. They'd be up on the, they'd be everywhere. They had flat roofs, right? So they would put those on the flat roofs. Why, why did they do that? Well, well God said they're going to go in those booths and they're going to live in that temporary shelter. You know, then, and Job built it in such a way, this is very accurate in the sense the roof was just leafy. It would rain and everything, but you could see the stars at night. <clears throat> but they would live there as a reminder, live there and remember that when you were in the wilderness, this is what you lived in. And in the wilderness, though this thing could blow over, I mean, if, if the wind hit it, it could blow it over. In the wilderness, God, what did he do? He, he provided, he protected, 
and he was present with you. So those eight days they would live in these <clears throat> booths. Now, there, was, there were more people, there was more joy, there was honestly more celebration in Jerusalem at the Feast of Booths than any other. And this kind of gets at what I think is behind his brother's comments. <clears throat> One way we can get at this is, I'm gonna give you some different analogies, so you're gonna have to stick with them as I give them. Think about Jesus' brothers as his campaign managers. Jesus is running for office, let's just say. He needs a popular vote. Let's note this. Chapter six was a bit of a disaster in that regard. <laughs> How did it end? How did chapter six end? Many chose not to keep following him. So, so his campaign is going like this. In chapter six, the bottom drops out. And now for the brothers, you see, for them, it's, whoa, 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 wait. Perhaps we can get some of those people back, Jesus, if you'll go to the biggest festival in the nation where everyone is and do your thing, right? Do your, do your miracles. They viewed Jesus as an earthly king, right? They, they were wanting Jesus to immediately deal with Rome, get them off their backs and destroy all their enemies and bring an earthly kingdom. If Jesus needed the popular vote to achieve his mission, then this would be a fabulous strategy. <laughs> but we know it's not because that's not his mission. Jesus didn't, nor will he ever need the popular vote. Amen. Let me say this, he will never need the majority. What's required is a small group, a minority of people who trust Jesus so completely, they look foolish to the world, i.e. not like his brothers. I want you to keep this in mind as we get to the application. Just hold that thought. For it's at the heart of what it means to judge with right judgment. Then in one of, I think it's one of the saddest verses in the Bible, verse five, for not even his brothers believed in him. By the way, these are his blood brothers. Matthew tells us, he gives them, he tells us their names, like the brothers that Mary bore, you know, after Jesus, who was the oldest, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. He, Matthew even says Jesus had sisters, so this is his family, and they don't believe in him. And I want to stop here for a moment to, to, to clarify this. They do actually believe in him, okay? So let's, let's just be careful how we frame that. They were all for him, but, but I've said this, and I want to remind you. They believed in him as an earthly king. And what this tells us is that to believe, in to believe that Jesus is anything other than who he says he is, right? The son of God sent from the father is to not believe. The second thing that's really tragic in this is it's possible to be so close to Jesus that you look like a genuine follower. I think we all know this, but how about your, your brothers, your, your flesh and blood? 
to look like a genuine follower while in fact you are as far from Jesus as those who oppose him. Pick up the story, keep going, verses six through nine. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time's always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates, why can't the world hate them? Because they're of the world. They're, they're, there's no difference between their life and the world. The world can't hate you. Oh, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained <clears throat> in Galilee. Jesus uses the word kairos here. Your, my time, it's not you my time. Uh, there's, there's a Greek word, chronos, which means time. Like right now, it's, you know, 1125, chronological time. This word kairos doesn't mean chronological time. It means moment of opportunity. <laughs> My moment's not here. Jesus lived his life by a different clock than us. Wherever he was, whatever he was doing, it's like he was exactly where he was supposed to be. And, and just for a point of application, I just want us to think about this. Is it true for us? You know, would that be true for us, that wherever we are, we're exactly where we're supposed to be? Could it be? Should it be? I, I think yes, absolutely. You see, the same Holy Spirit whom Jesus was depending upon, who put him right where he needed to be, when he needed to be there is the same Holy Spirit who lives in us as believers. And so, yes, absolutely. The question is this, how dependent am I on the Spirit, right? How, how do I live my life? Do I just get up and go, I'm gonna do today? Or is my life lived in utter dependence? God, this is your day. Order my steps this day. I'm dependent upon your spirit. See, when we're in that place, listen, you're right where you need to be when you need to be there. I'll warn you though, you already know this. God's timing is seldom ours. And so what happens is that God seems to overprescribe what we're allergic to, which is, to wait, to wait. And when Jesus says, I'm not going up to the feast, some, some critics say, look, he's a liar. He said, I'm not going. Then the next verse he says, he goes. I, I, I really think a careful reading of the context, right? If you do read the context, he was not yet going up. I.e., I, he, I'm not going up like you guys want me to go up, loudly, <laughs> publicly. I'm not going up that way. So from the feast at hand, it's before the feast. Now we're gonna go this real quickly, uh, the feast in secret. Look at verses 10 to 13. It says, but after, after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he's leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. Just a quick note. Jesus is a fork in the road. He just keeps dividing people. He's a good man. He's a deceiver. 
Both of which, by the way, and I don't have time to get into this, but let me say this. He's a good man. That's unbelief. He's a deceiver. That's unbelief. This is all unbelief. The threat was real. So, so when, when I said earlier, Jesus, they knew, Jesus knew that the religious leaders wanted to kill him, so he stayed in Galilee. Um, it was a real threat. People won't even speak openly about him for fear of the religious leaders, what they will do to them. We'll note throughout the, the, the gospels, what they would do is they would remove you from the synagogue, which means they ruin your life. They had that power and could do it. So feast. Uh, you know, before, now we're with the feast in secret, but the bulk of our text, here's where we need to go. Verses 14 to 24, the feast in public, the feast in public. And, Bob, and, and Rob will finish this next week. I'm just gonna read it and make our comments. Verse 14, about the middle of the feast. Remember I said it's an eight day, started seven, it's eight. So right day three, day four, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled saying, how is it that this man is learning when he has never studied. So Jesus answered them, my teaching's not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there's no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, you have a demon. It's literally, it's like, you're crazy. <laughs> Who's seeking to kill you? And Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath, a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry at me? with me because on the Sabbath, I made a man's whole body well. Who's he referring to? The, the healing at the, the pool of Bethesda, chapter five. He healed that man on the Sabbath. And they were like, ah. it's like, they weren't, they weren't like, what a miracle. They were like, you did that on the Sabbath. You know, that's what they were all upset about. He says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. I, I, I believe this. And again, may I encourage you, Rob and I do this, uh, encourage you a lot. And we do this is, is, you know, the spirit lives in you. Use your sanctified imagination to insert yourself in the story. You're not going to go extra biblical. Don't be afraid of that. But, but just imagine, you know, these, what's happening in, these, in their lives. And, and for me, I got to believe that the, when, when Jesus finally came in to the, uh, to the, to the feast, the, the, the brothers were like, yeah. Listen, when he started teaching in the temple, it was, yeah, right? You know, it was like, yes. We, he's, he's public now, no more secrets. I don't mean to be sacrilegious in, in this analogy, but just again, to get us there and what's happening in this city, would you imagine with me that Jerusalem at the Feast of Booths is like, is like Bonnaroo, okay? Minus a few things maybe, or, or maybe not. <laughs> or, you know, we go to a pilgrimage festival, you know, it's a little more, you know, family oriented, whatever. Um, for anyone from California, right? And by the way, I say this first service and I mean it, Quit apologizing for moving here. We're so glad you're here. I mean that, or from wherever you are, because I'm gonna get off on a soapbox here, but listen to me. If you've moved here from another place, understand this, God moves his people. God has purposes for you and plants you in different places in, in his grace and his goodness. If you land here, praise God, God's got a purpose for you in that. But if you're from California, how about this? Think of Coachella, okay? It's, this, is what, this is what this is all about. 
tents dotting the, 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 the roofs, right? All these tents everywhere, all these temporary shelters all around. It was, I said it's the biggest festival, it's the biggest feast because it happens at the end of harvest. There's so much to this. And I'm just, I'm just kind of wetting your appetite. That the feast of booths comes when all the work is done. It's the last feast. And all the fruit and grain is in. Breathe and party. I mean, really, joy. Celebrate God's provision and goodness. Here's a passage from Deuteronomy that captures this. Be joyful at your feast. You, your sons and daughters, your men servants, maid servants, the Levites, aliens, fatherless, everybody who live in your towns. For seven days, celebrate the feast of the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose. For the Lord your God will bless you in all your harvest and in all your, and in all the work of your hands. This is so key. And your joy will be complete. The harvest is in. God's given it. Rest. Joy in its fullness. Right in the middle of this, Jesus takes center stage with our music festival analogy. Not the little sideshows, the center stage. They can't believe what he's teaching. He's never been to school. You gotta understand this culturally. It's true today that originality is anathema, you know, for a Jew. It was frowned upon. You speak with authority, not because it's original with you, but because you can quote your rabbi. So if I'm a rabbi, my teacher is a super esteemed rabbi. Rabbi so-and-so says, and you say it. That's what matters. That's where authority comes from. And notice Jesus doesn't argue with that, does he? Jesus didn't, you know, had Jesus said, look, you guys need an authority, but I don't. He doesn't do that. But what he does really does blow their mind, doesn't it? Because he says, okay, I didn't go to school, but my rabbi is God. (laughs) Right, for them, they're like, my rabbi is God. He's been saying it the whole gospel. The confidence of the religious leaders is that they follow Moses. We do what Moses says. So Jesus always goes there. He's not afraid to go there. He says, yes, Moses gave you the law and not one of you keeps it. How can you say you keep the law of Moses when you're plotting to kill me? You say you keep the law and you're gonna kill. I'm an innocent man. That would be a total violation of the law. Crowd doesn't know what we know. Crowd says, you're crazy because they they're not aware that religious leaders are, are plotting to do this. And then Jesus explains the healing of the lame man on the Sabbath. Back in chapter five, verse 18, he heals the lame man on the Sabbath. They are so upset it's just weird, isn't it? They're, they're so upset. They're not even amazed at the healing. They're upset that he did it on the Sabbath. And this is, this is I'm try, I wanna be real careful here. So I, I, I'm trying to slow down and go track with me on this because it's very subtle, but it's very, very significant. It give, if we get this, it gives us insight. This is why I wanted you to get this. It gives us insight into all of the feasts. I mean, what do the feasts mean? What are they It gives us insight into the law. I mean, what, what, why booze? What's this all about? Is it just remember what God did? No, no, you gotta get, get what Jesus says here to get this. Here we go. 
the law said there's no work on the Sabbath. It was a reminder to the Jews, right? God gave this. It was a reminder to them that God created the heavens and the earth in six days. Seventh day he rested. They were to honor the Sabbath, you know, they're not to work on the Sabbath because what do they do on the Sabbath? They don't do any work. And yet they still eat, they still live. It's a a reminder, you can trust God, right? And you can rest. Before that law was given, you know, before that, God, God gave Abraham circumcision. So before there was ever a nation of Israel, God called Abraham and said, Abraham, through you, I'm going to give you a people, a land, and your, your people are going to be a blessing to the world. Now we know that's Jesus comes through Israel. But he said to Abraham, now as a sign of my covenant with you, you will circumcise every male child. You'll do it on the eighth day. And that circumcision was a, a mark, a, a significant mark to say, you're in the covenant community. So Jesus looks at them and he says, here's the problem. What happens if your boy is born and the eighth day is the Sabbath? Huh? Wait, you said I've got to circumcise him that'd be work, but it's the Sabbath, no work. Now this is, this is where I want you to hear this. The, the religious leaders, they got this right. You know, we're kind of hammering them, you know, like you guys, I don't see... They got this right. Because what did they do? The rabbis recognize that circumcision is the higher good, the, that sign of the covenant. It's the higher good given even before the law. And so it's not breaking the law when you circumcise your, your boys. And Jesus says, likewise, me making a man whole, healing a lame man who's been lame for 38 years, making him whole. It's the the higher good of the Sabbath and the law. It's not breaking the Sabbath. Are you tracking with me on that? Because see, then they understood, Jesus trying to help them see what they've decided, is that the, the, the Sabbath, the Feast of Booze, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Passover Feast, all of these things, right, are about something bigger than what they are. And they're all pointing to God and pointing to Jesus and pointing to redemption and wholeness. Then the text ends with this command. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And I said it earlier, and here's where we go. He's speaking to me. He's speaking to you. So you can close your Bible, you can put away your notes because here's the point. This is the time where like, okay, what do I decide? What do I choose? What is my judgment? And let me, I'm gonna walk us through this. It'll take a moment. I want us to consider the, the right judgment. I'm gonna put us in two categories and I think this is the way the world is, at least one way to look at it is there are those who put their trust in Christ and those who have not yet put their trust in Christ. And so the first thing is to kind of put yourself in one of these two. You know, I would put myself over here because I, I, I've put my trust in Christ. I, I believe that he died on the cross, was buried and rose again for me and he paid the penalty for my sins. And, and if you're in that category, then, then, then you're in, in this group. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you to consider this judgment. I'm gonna ask you to consider this choice. And I'm gonna do it like this, in light of our story, in light of the feast. Put yourself in the booth. 
in the tabernacle, the temporary structure, the one that would blow over. This is way sta more stable probably than the ones they did and the ones that would just blow over were it not for God's protection, his keeping of you. See, if you put your trust in Christ and you know, you, you, you're here and, 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 and we're to remember that in our wilderness, God still provides, God still protects, God is still present. I would say with, with Augustine that, that our lives as Christians, we're still in the wilderness, so to speak. Y'all, we're not all the way home. But our life on this planet is a life in the wilderness. So we, we, we remind ourselves of that in this booth. And here's the choice for you to consider. When life conspires to make you question God's faithfulness, God's protection, his provision, and his presence, and life does do that. It does. It does, it does, it does. And so some of us, you find yourself in a place where it's, it's hard to remember that God's with you, for you, that he's even using this awful circumstance in ways you cannot fathom, but, but, but you, you sit and you, it's hard for you to go, he's gonna get me home and this is not gonna keep me from that. And God's even gonna use this in a way that I cannot comprehend. Will you make a right judgment and in this place, renew your trust. Just trust afresh that God protects, provides, he's present, he keeps, and oh, he will get you where he is taking you. That's your, that's your choice, okay, for those who've trusted Christ. If you're in this place over here and you've not yet put your trust in Christ and yet you're in the room or you're listening to me online, I'm so glad you may be watching this years from when I'm speaking it. I assure you, whether you know why you're listening or here or not, it, God's speaking to you. He's saying something. Your choice is whether or not to put your trust in Jesus. He's a fork in the road. And the invitation is, will you believe? Will you trust Christ? Now, I've got to take us back to something Rob said on this one and, and just bear with me. Remember Rob said when, when, when Simon Peter answered Jesus, he said this, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and we have come to know. And it was interesting, wasn't it? When Rob said, look, you guys, it's not, you come to know and so then you believe. It's, there's you believe and then you come to know. Now, I want, I want you to note, Jesus says the same thing in our text. Look at verse, chapter seven, look at verse 17. If anyone will, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know, he will know whether I am speaking on my own, whether my teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Y'all, he says the same thing, doesn't he? It's like, if anyone wills to do God's will, then you'll know, then you'll know. This is really, really important. It's not the lack of information that is keeping you from Jesus. It's not a lack of understanding. It's your will. According to Jesus. I know this. God's will, because 
Jesus says it, and it's in the whole book, is that you come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's God's will. So I'm going to paraphrase verse 17 like this, and this is what he's saying. If anyone determines that they want to believe, God will make sure that you come to see Jesus for who he is. It's just a different way to say this. He says, the invitation to you, if you haven't trusted Christ, the invitation this morning from Jesus is this, just choose to want to. I assure you, even the fact that you would choose to want to, that's only because God's at work in your life. But you choose to want to, and then, and it's maybe not today, it may not be a, a year from now, but it, choose to want to, and the promise is, oh, God will show you Christ indeed is who he says he is. I've got a story here I want to read to you. Bear with me, it's a little long, but it's... It, it, when I read something and it strikes me, I just kind of assume there's somebody out here that it'll strike them as well. Ken Lehman, Ken and Joy, they've been in our church for a number of years. Ken came to faith later in life. It was after the message on, you know, that I taught two weeks ago on sovereignty and salvation that he, he sent me an email and I read it and I just, I just wept when I read it. But it speaks to what I'm talking about here. Listen to what Ken says. He, he titled this, on my coming to Christ. This happened to me when I was going through the Explore class, six weeks from September 20th to October 25th, 2004. It was an evangelistic class we were doing, that I received Christ in my life. Do I fully understand? No. I don't know that I will ever fully understand what God did for me in Jesus Christ, but when reflecting upon this, I realize that I realized that this came about in my life, not because I did it, I finally figured it out, but instead it was from seeking God, from praying for God to remove the obstacles for me. Because at the end of the day, it was God through the Holy Spirit that breathed life in me. I remember approaching Jeff Schulte after the third session of Explore and explaining to him my struggle to find Christ, wondering if I was one of the elect. Telling him my frustration. I'm really trying, but I just can't seem to get there. And Jeff telling me, hey, you're here. This raises the hair on my arms. You're standing here with a Bible in your hand. Seeking Christ. And what does God say? Seek and you will find. Be patient. Continue to pray. Pray that God will remove the obstacles. And this is what I did. I continued to seek. I continued to pray. What, what wisdom, what biblical wisdom from Jeff to, to Ken. And then he writes, I can remember sitting on my chair in the great room, his great room, transcribing Lloyd's message on election predestination. And my thought is, what? Ken, what are you doing? Transcribing a message? He said, this would have been sometime between October 12th and October 25th, 2004. I don't recall the exact day. I was beginning to understand these words as I meditated on them. And then I felt a definite stirring in my heart an outpouring from my heart, a literal breath of life breathed into me and thinking, how great is our God? I felt drawn to him. 
with his words staring me in the face saying, it's true. Come to me. I want you to know me and being overwhelmed by this. Remembering Lloyd saying that if you really believe, then you will fall on your knees and say, thank you, God. And this was my natural response at that moment. And falling on my knees is exactly what I did. It's a work of God. And your choice this morning, may I encourage you, is to choose life. Perhaps you, 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 don't, you can't believe right now, but do you want to? Tell God you want to. Bow your heads. I'm gonna invite you to talk to God for a moment. If you know Christ, can you trust him afresh? He's keeping you, even in this transient, temporary, flimsy booth. If you don't know Christ, do you want to? And tell him. Oh God, we need you. Left to ourselves, we can't choose you. Left to ourselves, we're struggling to remind ourselves that you're faithful. So Holy Spirit, open our eyes to what's true today. Grant us the faith to believe. To trust you more fully in this place that's so difficult to trust you for the first time in this place where we, we don't trust you yet at all. Do this work in us, we pray for your glory. Amen. Let me invite you to take the Lord's table elements. This table we come to week by week is for all who've put their trust in Jesus. And it's that ordinance Jesus gave us. It says every time you do this, when you receive the bread and you take the cup, you're proclaiming that my life, death, and resurrection is a historical reality, and you've put your trust in it, and that it's not just historical, it's future, that I'm coming again to set all things right. So, so if you know Christ, you're welcome to it. Take the bread in one hand and the cup in the other, and go ahead and stand if you would, please. And let's take, this, let's take this cup today in the context of our story. Here's what I mean by that. The brothers who did not believe in him, what did they say? Show yourself to the world. But that would have meant, the way they wanted him to show himself would have meant avoiding the cross. Jesus does show himself to the world, you all. And he does it on a cross. 
thank God he did it on a cross. Because that is where he bore our sin. It's where he suffered separation from the Father. He did it in our place. And so we're at this table saying, thank you, Jesus, that you chose to show yourself to the world on the cross, not on a platform, a place of great shame and disgrace, not, at the, not a place where people were applauding you. Because our problem is so grave, you had to take our punishment for us. And in this table, we're reminded of that and we're grateful. Receive the bread. Your life was poured out, symbolized by this cup so that ours would never have to be. In taking the cup, we proclaim the historical reality of your life, death, and resurrection and the future certainty, certainty that you're coming back again and you're gonna make all things new and set all things right. Thank you, Jesus. Receive the cup. God, hear our prayer in this song that you would be the center of all. That you'd grant us eyes of faith to see that you're all we need. That here at this fork, we would choose you. And in choosing you, choose life.